stereotypes tend to break down in proximity. Sitting around the table together and breaking bread, that's one way that people break down kind of barriers between them. But um, working on a project together is another great way, or, or being mentored or in that sort of learning relationship with each other is another way that stereotypes just break down. Welcome to We're Only Human, a podcast focused on blending research and practical advice to help today's HR, talent, and learning leaders improve business outcomes. Let's welcome your host, Ben Eubanks. Hey everyone, this is Ben Eubanks, host of We're Only Human, and I'm so glad to have you here. It's going to be a great conversation today, as always. So you know me, right? If you've listened for more than five minutes to any episode in the past, you know I love talking about AI, talking about recruiting, talking about talent. And while I love talking about that, I'm also very careful to talk about um, bias and how to help employers make the right decisions, all those good things. And so I actually today am thrilled because I have an expert on that topic here today to talk to us chat with us about that, dig into the topic a little bit, and share her perspective, what she's seeing in the market. So I would love to welcome Heather Tinsley-Fix from AARP to the show today. Welcome, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So tell everybody here that's listening in a little bit more about what you, what you are, who you are, and what you do. <laughs> right. So um, my name is Heather Tinsley-Fix, and I actually work at AARP. And uh, that might seem a little bit initially confusing because AARP as an organization is generally associated with retirement, but um, as we uh, live longer and stay healthier for longer, and as um, financial circumstances sometimes dictate that we need to work longer, we're, um, all of us are working longer, especially younger generations are probably going to have to work until 70, 75. So AARP has decided to um, really focus uh, a lot of attention on helping the 50-plus thrive in the labor market. And part of that, and this is the work that I lead, is to engage with the employer community uh, around topics such as the value of age diversity, why a multi-generational workforce matters, and why it's good for business. So those, that's, what I, um, that's what I actually work on at AARP. And I'll get into a little bit more about why I got interested in this topic uh, a bit later. Okay, awesome. So when you're not at work, I'd love to ask, you and I have met each other a couple times at conferences, so I feel super comfortable like just chatting with you, and I'm going to have to try mm -hmm. to be not go completely informal, but I'd love to hear more from you. When you're not at work, when you're not trying to save the world and make employers better, all those good things, what, are, what else do you like to do? Um, I like to cook. And I, I like to, um, I love to watch shows. So there's so much good television on right now, and I just can't keep up with it all. In fact, I recently... Um, decided that I was going to get HBO purely to watch Game of Thrones. So <laughs> like a lot of folks out there, I love shows. And um, yeah, I like to read. I like to, you know, hang out with my family. The usual stuff. Very cool. Well, I, I love cooking too. I, and I, just like you? You, I travel great. a good bit. Yeah, I travel a good bit. So I watch probably just as much shows as I as I would if I was home, you know, in yeah. the TV. So awesome. Very cool. Do you um, so do you like share cooking with your wife or like do you do it you know, you know in, a, in an equal manner or <laughs> she is a phenomenal cook and mm -hmm. is, is great at actually her thing is baking more than cooking. If there's a if you want to divide that out, she loves to, to bake more than 
not more than me, but more than the average person, I would say. But it's mm-hmm. just one of the things I really enjoy doing. And we actually, one of my favorite things is like, hey, will you come in here and cook with me, bake with me? That's one of my favorite things to do with her. But um, nice. it's just one of the things I've always really enjoyed. And growing up, again, Southern, like very traditional, the family had dinner together every single night. And so... Mm-hmm around the dinner table, and that is the thing we still do today with our kids. Like, hey, we are sitting down, we are eating together, you're not getting up and going anywhere, you're not having a tablet, whatever else. Like, we are looking each other in the eye and talking to each other as, a, as real mm-hmm. people. So it's probably connected <laughs> to all those things. I think that's all, that's all tied together. So um, like you said, it's connecting with family, all those other good things. I think all that, we don't lose those things. So Great. fine. Excellent. Interesting. Interesting. Um, okay, so... I have seen you, as I mentioned a minute ago, at several events in the last year speaking about this, this different – we can talk about a couple things. I want to hear from you. Let's start off with the, the value of diversity in terms of age and you know, life stage. Let's talk about that piece, and then let's get into the bias. That's fair with you. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, perfect. So let's talk about that and what you're seeing there. Right. So um, we – so one of the um, hot topics in diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging is um, a cognitive diversity, right? And so we know that we've got kind of all the boxes checked in terms of the categories we want to have um, in our, our workforce mix. Um, but another element that's really starting to become apparent is we really need cognitive diversity. That's where you get um, innovation. Innovation comes from. Um, that's what drives profits uh, and so on. So one of the great ways, one of the like sort of super easy ways to drive cognitive diversity, um, even if you don't have a super diverse, say, ethnically or um, gender-wise mix in your organization, is to put people of different ages together. Um, and so uh, that's one of the great benefits of an age-diverse workforce. Another great benefit of having older and younger workers together is that they can learn from each other. There are certain skills that just take time to develop, um, and these tend to be kind of what I call uniquely human or sort of higher order cognitive skills. Those are some of the usual things you hear about, um, you know, developing what we call wisdom, but also things like critical thinking, the ability to anticipate problems, to think at a systems level, um, relationship management, all those kind of soft skills are just generally those are ones that take take a good amount of time to develop. And so having older workers in the mix is a great way to bring those skills to younger workers, to provide that mentorship, that sort of leadership growth for them. And then younger uh, workers are great, of course, at sharing their skills or their information um, in any direction, right? So if you, have, if you have a culture where you want to create a learning culture and a growth mindset, you want to encourage your older workers, too, to really benefit from those relationships with younger workers and, and soak up all of their skills and all the new things that they're learning. Mm, I love that. So we actually did a study earlier this year on the number one skill. We asked talent leaders. We also asked employees themselves, what's the number one skill someone needs to be successful long term, not just to, to make it through the day, but to be successful into the future? And both groups independently came out with communication skills. It's the number one thing people need to be successful. Mm-hmm. Right, and I yeah. love that because I'm not. I don't pick on, you know, generations, whatever else. Like when you first get into the workforce, you do not understand how mm-hmm. things work. You have not sat in a board meeting. You have not been on a conference call. You have not been, you know, like in meetings and stuff with managers before. So you don't know how to act. And I love mm-hmm. the idea of pairing people together because 
another thing we found in that research is people want to actually learn how to do things. They really want to learn these new skills. Mm-hmm. Not just because someone gives me like a formal course, you know, go take this training, but I want a mentor that I can talk with informally. They can help coach mm-hmm. me and guide me without it feeling like, you know, my boss is looking over my shoulder or someone's judging me for this. Right. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. And, you know, the older we get, the more tacit knowledge we have, and that tends to be the hardest to transmit in, like, databases or spreadsheets or, or manuals, right? It's, it's definitely the kind of knowledge that has to be imparted person to person. So, Yeah. I love that. That might, be our, that might be your quotable quote for the day. I love that. So there's a value here right, in bringing these groups together. And again, it's not about forcing them together and saying you will learn something from each other, but it happens mm-hmm. naturally if we create the environment where that, where that just happens as part of the culture, part of the work that they're doing every day. Uh, don't make it feel forced because it will feel forced. Right? Just make it right, feel no. like a natural part of how these things go. Um, one of the other things that I've seen organizations do that are successful in that is they'll actually, when that happens and there's a really interesting outcome or someone learns something new and helpful for them in their role, they actually kind of tell the story. Like, hey, here's a, mm. like a mini internal case study. This person, we paired up this executive with this, this younger person because there was a mentoring relationship there. It was more formal in that case, but they said, you know, here's the thing that they learned. Here's how mm-hmm. they learned to be better at, at you know, understanding the importance of having a social presence and sharing your, your insights and, and your thoughts online in a way to, to get that attention, not just on yourself, but the company brand as well. But also, again, going the other direction, that younger person learns, hey, here's what a leader has to do. Here's the kind of decisions they have to make. Here's the kind of things you have to factor in when it's not all black and white. Here's how you make that call. Mm. And mm-hmm. it goes both ways. But sharing that story openly helps other people say, oh, you know, there is value in that. It's not just mm. I've got to put up with them until they retire or, you know, kids these days. Like it, the conversations don't all have to be those kind of negative stereotypes. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And I think stereotypes tend to break down in proximity. So kind of going back to your analogy about sitting around the table together and breaking bread, that's one way that people break down kind of barriers between them. But um, working on a project together is another great way, or, or being mentored or in that sort of learning relationship with each other is another way that stereotypes just break down. So it's a good way to do that too. There's another quote of a quote. Goodness, you're giving me lots of that. Okay. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, all right. Last year, I saw you talk about this last summer. And again, you're still speaking about it because it's, it's still a thing, still a problem. Mm-hmm. What's interesting mm-hmm. is a lot of the news that I've seen in the last year, I've been doing this research for, for a couple of years now around AI in the workplace and some of the tools for automation for the recruiting side specifically. And last fall, there was a huge kind of explosion around the topic. People understood a little more about it. There were at least a little more news articles and things about the concept of machine bias and how algorithms can make the wrong choices. And so people started to be aware of that. I'm seeing more content, more people talking about it. But you were talking about this stuff last summer before a lot of those stories ever even happened. So you were you were kind of I want to say mm. first necessarily, right? I'll give you mm. that cred. Right, fine, you're Thanks. first. Whatever. <laughs> um, Heather's awesome. We'll just go ahead and lay that down right now. But talk to me a little bit about why you're passionate about the topic of AI discrimination, how it affects the people that you're trying to serve at AARP. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I got interested in this topic because in December of 2017, um, the New York Times published this really interesting article that, that came from findings from an organization called ProPublica. They were looking into um, just the ways that social media kind of you know, pushes us into our echo chambers. 
that was what ProPublica was working on, but one of the things they stumbled across or uncovered was that uh, a number of employers were using Facebook to age target their employment ads, right? So they would say, I want, to, I want this ad to be seen by people who are 25 to 36. So that really narrowed the window of people that were seeing about these opportunities or that would like, see them you know, in Facebook. So um, there's currently, and this will actually come in later if we get to talk about regulation or, or case law, but currently there is an actual, there's a um, class action lawsuit by older communications workers against a lot of these, um, the companies, one of them is Verizon, and um, I won't go into all of them. Uh, but at any rate, so there's, that's going on right now to see does this actually qualify as age discrimination. But so this got me really interested in, okay, what's happening now with recruiting and how we are outsourcing more of it to um, algorithms into, into machine learning, and what are the implications for just all kinds of bias, not just age bias, or the potential for it, I'm sorry. Because these, these platforms have a lot of promise, but I think, um, you know, and this is probably if there's one takeaway you take from this podcast is don't trust the marketing, right? Just Mm. Make sure you ask questions and push your vendors, right? And then and vendors are going to be happy to answer your questions because you know it's a partnership. But don't just sort of blindly accept kind of what they say. Um, and so, I really just got interested in, in that. And in the larger context too, right? Algorithms are deciding access to um, not only jobs and economic opportunities that way, but also, or they're influencing the outcomes of it. They're also deciding who gets credit, who gets loans, who gets access to housing. I mean, so in a larger sort of conversation culturally, we need to start having, um, start being, just being really mindful of how we create, monitor, and re rejigger our algorithms. Mm. So I'll tell you a story. You can add it to your to your list if you haven't heard this mm -hmm. one already. So one of the stories I love sharing to get people to understand this concept of how we we can unknowingly program an algorithm to do the wrong thing is um, there was a professor at Harvard named Tanya Sweeney, and she was doing mm -hmm. research and was finishing up a project. She Googled her name as part of this, and it said the first result, sponsored result was Latanya Sweeney arrest record. And she mm -hmm. freaked out a little bit, like, what in the world? What's going on here? So she mm -hmm. paid the fee. She went to the website and found out what she already knew. She had never been arrested. But she got curious, and she searched her coworker's name on the project, Adam so-and-so, and it said, would you like to see Adam's high school uh, transcripts? And she's mm -hmm. like, well, that's weird because mm -hmm. you know, the names should return something similar. So she started in research, and she found that in her research, if you have an African-American sounding name, you're more likely to get that arrest record result. And if you have a Caucasian sounding name, you're more likely to get the innocuous, you know, hey, do you want to see their, their diploma or whatever else? And so mm -hmm. she reached out to the advertising company and said, hey, you guys are really doing a disservice here. What, what's the deal? Right, you're, you're making yourself look bad. You're making us look bad. And what she, they said, hey, you know what? It's not us. We set this up. Mm -hmm. When we started running the campaign, it was a 50-50 split. It's a flip of the coin what you're going to get. But over time, what we'll click on will drive the algorithm to repeat that over and over and over again. Right, mm -hmm. like the echo, the echo chamber, social media thing you mentioned earlier. Like whatever we're liking and sharing and, and posting on, we're going to get more of those kinds of things. And this is an example. The algorithm wasn't bad. It wasn't. It wasn't messed up. It did exactly what it was taught to do. It just kept mm -hmm. rewarding those behaviors people were giving it over and over again by showing that result more frequently for those results. And so, exactly. Reminder, like it, that seems like a small thing, but like you said, that gets expanded into who gets who gets access to 
certain kinds of care um, mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. And so the algorithms start taking over parts of our lives, and it's it's a big deal. Um, and it can even I've read some stories where people can even be punished if there's not enough data about you for the system yeah. to make a determination, right? If mm-hmm. um, there's there's some states where DHR, the Department of Human Resources, that's deciding if the kids are going to stay with the family or not when there's a, a mm-hmm. family issue. They're looking mm-hmm. at all the, the data in the algorithm. If there's not enough data, they're like, well, you know, we can't make a, a determination. So that's, I don't know, it scares me just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. it does. And I think it points to the fact that most big decisions, like who you're going to hire and how you're going to fill your, your requisitions, are a series of very, very small micro decisions. And I think that's where the we need to focus kind of our attention with regard to AI in, in hiring or in these other arenas because um, you're – in the case of, say, Latanya Sweeney, um, she's she's uh, experiencing kind of the algorithm being neutral and spotting patterns of pre-existing bias, or um, if it's unconscious or conscious, or even just historical legacy of that bias, right? So bias can emerge from the system even when, as actors who are creating these algorithms, we're saying, you know, we don't want um, any race or gender or age or ability to be factored into the algorithm, take it all out. But, but the bias emerges anyway because the algorithm, which is which is neutral, I mean, it's a machine, right? It's spotting the patterns that already exist. Yes. Oh, goodness. Okay. We're getting, like, really deep here. It went from mm. I like cooking with my kids <laughs> down to like, <laughs> algorithms are, are running our lives, are on the verge of it. So <laughs> you mentioned a minute ago, and this is one of the things that I share as well. I want to hear your take on it, and I'll, I'll comment a little bit. What advice do you share with employers around around this? You said be willing to push back, be willing to ask questions. What sorts of questions would you encourage employers to ask if they're looking at something, uh, a new solution or a tool to help with the hiring process, and, and they might be aware of this or concerned about it or not even sure what to do? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a programmer. I'm not sure yeah, you know, what, no. the, what the algorithm is doing. Of course. Give them some advice. Great. So um, I found kind of in the work that I've been doing around this, I found that there's sort of four key areas where unintentional bias kind of comes into the into play. And so these are the kind of four areas that you can sort of probe about with your vendors. Um, the first is the problem of prediction, right? Prediction models on – so there's two areas in this. Prediction models are built on patterns of existing data and behavior. And prediction models are also built on user – like, like recommendation engines, for example, are built on previous user behavior. So there's the data itself, kind of the underlying um, inequities in society, right, that is mm-hmm. part of the issue of prediction that the, the computer spots as patterns. But then there's also the user behavior. So if you, as a woman, I'll give you an example. If you're on ZipRecruiter as a job seeker, and let's say um, I'm a woman in my mid-30s, and I my particular issue is that I don't think that I'm capable of doing like a VP job. So I don't actually, um, even when I search, let's say I search for a marketing job and I see a couple VP spots come up, I don't click on those because I might be struggling with some um, you know, in, in inadequacies or whatever. That means, though, that other women who are really confident, um, if there's enough of those people who, enough women aren't clicking on VP spots, other women who say maybe ready to like very confident, if they do a search, they're going to see less of those VP jobs served up to them, right? So it's learning from user behavior. And so the wider kind of unintentional bias of people um, that you don't know that are using the platform affects what you see. So that's the first problem. The second problem is one of composition. So how do the vendors put their algorithms together? What values do they look for? How do they weight those values? 
Um, so, for example, do they look for only top colleges or um, a certain skill set? That makes a lot of sense, right? A certain skill set makes sense, but do they look for things like um, uh, what, what extracurricular activity you do, how often do you tweet, and stuff like that? What are the values that they're putting into the algorithm? How are they weighted? And then what kind of assumptions or sort of normative judgments are encoded in those choices? Um, so that's a, so pushing on that, like how you know what what data are you feeding into the algorithm, or what um, values are you looking for? The third thing, stay with me here. The third thing is the problem of yeah, correlation, right? So um, many of the players in this space are born out of consumer um, kind of consumer recommendation engines, and so they're looking for people you know, in quotes, people like me, right? So now this is not usually traditionally the way we search for candidates, right? But in, in a hyper-competitive um, labor market, we're trying to like go as fast as we can to find these candidates. And this is a shortcut because it works. Like you can say, all right, I want to start advertising on manga sites for my, um, for my programmers because I know that, they, that most of them are there, or many of them are there. So the, the, that again sort of feeds into that echo chamber. And the problem with correlation in the data, like uh, an algorithm can spot a correlation, like people who are really good at programming tend to visit these websites and um, you know, click like in these ways and, and so on. The problem with those correlations is that they're not, they might be significant statistically, but they're not in any way related <laughs> to the job that the person is going to do. So mm -hmm. a good example of this is I was at, um, Sherm Talent Management this year in April, went to a talk on this, and one of the um, panelists said, we found uh, using the, the algorithms that we were, that were, he's a vendor, right? So he's like, we found that the ideal candidate for um, company X, the one who's predicted to be the most successful, uh, has a dog, reads The Economist online, and used to be either a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout. Well, that's really cool, and that's fascinating, but does that actually really have to do with the skill set that the person brings to the table and whether or not they, they can do the job? So that's the problem of correlation, right? And if the, if the engine that you're working with or the vendor you're working with is built on that kind of model as opposed to, say, performance data or, um, you know, history of jobs, like, you know, your job history and your skill set and all of those things, then that's something to be aware, aware of. And then the final problem is the problem of training data. So when an, when an algorithm is set up, the first that, you know, that's created and uh, the computer programmer is like, okay, we want to look for these things, right? And we want to look for patterns uh, in, in these, along this value set. So we need some data to train the algorithm, to like, teach it. What training data do they feed into that algorithm to train it to look for patterns? Because the patterns it spots within the training data are generally going to be the patterns that it starts with when it's released into the real world and starts looking for candidates, ranking candidates, um, you know, engaging with them. So ask about the training data. That's just a normal sort of garbage in, garbage out um, argument. So another, I want to just, I know that I've, I've talked a lot, but um, I do have a couple of other non-algorithm related suggestions we can get to later that I often give employers for how to sort of um, mitigate the potential for bias. I want to throw in one funny comment, and then yeah, I'll yeah. let you loose on that one. Uh, going back to the correlation one, the correlation versus causation, the, the data that we're using, one of the things that happens back in the early 2000s, I mean, everybody was trying to copy Google and their model of 
asking weird off the wall interview questions during the interview mm-hmm. process. Right? They'd ask, you know, how many manhole covers in in San Francisco, or how do you fit an elephant in the refrigerator? They sh- they're like, they claimed they just wanted to see how candidates actually thought. Like we want to understand how your brain works, how you're making decisions, mm-hmm. but. What it actually turned out, all they were measuring is people's tolerance for stupid questions because there was no <laughs> connection between the actual performance on the job and how someone could bluff their way through one of those, those silly questions they were asking. And so they actually did away with them and stopped asking those oh. kinds of questions anymore. And that's a great yeah. – like, that, that's what that reminded me of that tie-in there. Just because you can see a correlation, like, correlation we think we can correlate, you know, people are smarter because they can ask, answer this, that doesn't mean that – Someone's ability to answer that question causes them to be better at the job. It just means that they can answer that question. So exactly. Yeah, right. Non-algorithm suggestions for the non-techies. Yeah, the non Yes, and also I do want to say something funny about of course, spurious correlation. If you just Google it, um, there's a website that um, shows really amusing correlations. <clears throat> excuse me, amusing correlations that exist. And one of them is. Um, the number of people who die by drowning in a pool apparently correlates to the number of movies that Nicolas Cage has been in over like a five-year period or something like that. So you can have a lot of fun with it. Um, it it's just not probably belong in the hiring arena. So, okay, so that's probably the of, best best stat ever shared on the show, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Great. Well, um, a couple of things, other things you can do um, that are that are not related to kind of poking and prodding at your vendors are. Um, first, figure out ways to um, separate out sensitive data as long as possible within the hiring funnel. So um, a company called Blendor does this, and there are others that are kind of jumping into the fray, which is you're just blurring the candidates' age, race, gender, ability, and all those other sort of protected class attributes. Um, And this goes back to that famous example of the Philharmonic, I don't know which city, but decided to to do blind auditions. So they separated the, say, the violinist who was auditioning um, visibly from the the deciders. And so they they ended up having more diversity that way because they couldn't see the candidates. So that's one way to do it is is blur those those sensitive characteristics as long as you can. Make sure that you provide in your assessment stage of kind of the hiring funnel one good way to um, to really predict how good someone's going to do in the job is to give them an assignment. So ask them to do a sales presentation or um, code a really simple website or write a paper or whatever it is. Um, so the assignments are a good way to gauge. Um, in addition to the games that, you know, like Pymetrics is a company that uh, provides fun games for people to play and then predicts how well they'll do in certain jobs. You can all, in addition to those types of assessments, you can provide um, the uh, uh, a work assignment. Yes, simulation um, or job task, absolutely. Definitely. Uh, definitely, this is probably you're already doing this, but utilize multiple forcing methods, obviously. Um, and pay attention to how your what your job descriptions are like and, and your employer branding. That's sort of very kind of like employer branding 101. But like if if candidates don't see themselves at your organization and don't apply, then again these algorithms are just gonna just gonna magnify that lack because you don't have people applying, and so they're like, well, those people must not be successful here, right? So make sure that you're you're inviting um, uh, in your employer marketing that you're inviting all candidates of all types to, to apply. Um, and then another last thing you can do, actually going back to the vendors, which is a great question to ask them actually, is whether or not they conduct periodic audits to see if the results of their, um, their suggestions and their ranking and their matching is 
providing diversity to their clients or suppressing diversity. Um, a good vendor will have a mechanism in place. HireView is one of these. They, they, um, they conduct periodic audits and go back and tweak and um, work with the algorithms to try and mitigate any sort of depressive effects that they see in terms of diversity. So that's another good question. Awesome. Very cool. I'm over here making notes of all the things you're sharing here. This is so, mm -hmm. that's so good. I love it. So, all right. Um, you mentioned a couple different companies in there. Um, Blendor, really, really sharp company. Their, their mm -hmm. um, CEO, Stephanie, actually won several awards last year at the HR Technology Conference for their solution as a, as a brand-new startup doing good stuff in the diversity space. So good to mention them. You mentioned Pymetrics for their assessments. They're, they're doing good stuff there. And then mm -hmm. one of those companies in the middle, you talked about the, the second one there, an assessment or some sort of tool where they can actually try the job out. Um, a company that's doing that really well for your own research, if you want to dig into them, is um, Vervo, V-E-R-V-O-E. -E. Mm. They're doing some good stuff. Um, they're based now. Great. Goodness, I want to say in Australia, they're going to kill me if it's like really New Zealand because they, they don't like being mixed up, but I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I'm from Alabama. It's all far away from me. So, um, but, but they're doing good stuff in that space to help employers build some sort of test or assessment because all the data say in terms of selection methods, that's the most mm. predictive way to see if someone can actually mm. do the job or not, not based on how cool the resume is or their GPA or all the other things you were just mentioning a minute ago, like what college they went to. Those things don't predict someone's success mm. in the job. It's actually their ability mm -hmm. To do to do those that task you're about to hire exactly. them to do, so that's the yeah. most predictive. All right. Yep. Wow. I am. My brain's exploding. I imagine everybody else <laughs> out there is, is like holding on for dear life. If someone's heard something fun, interesting, useful, or it's like I want to understand more about that, more about what Heather's doing, um, you and the rest of the team there at ARP, what's the best way to connect with you or to connect with the team there to learn more? So the, the most direct way is just to email me or to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I am hkinsley-fix at aarp.org. Um, I always love to hear from you, to learn what you know, um, and then to answer any questions you have. I'm happy to give away my decks, my research, my you know, links to the resources that I used. Um, I'm really glad. Thank you for telling me about Verbo. I'm really going to check that out. Um, and so LinkedIn and email. Um, and then uh, if you want to learn more about what AARP is doing in this space, uh, we have our sort of flagship program is the AARP Employer Pledge Program. It's, a, it's free to join, uh, and it, you, as an employer, you take a pledge to, um, to publicly affirm the value of older workers and to uh, commit to hiring um, a level playing field sorry, for candidates of all ages. Um, and you can find that at aarp.org forward slash employer pledge. Uh, and that, it, there's all kinds of resources and, and communications that kind of come along with being in that program. We, uh, one, one of the benefits of joining actually is that you get discounts. If you do want to source older candidates, post on our job board, which we market to um, our members and to the 50 plus in general. So that's a, that's a sourcing method that's like a diversity board for mm. experienced workers. Yep. Awesome. Very cool. I love that. So I'll make sure and get a link to your LinkedIn profile and also to the, the uh, pledge page there so they can mm -hmm. check that out, what you're doing um, on the show notes so they can click straight Great. through there. And um, man, I want to say thank you so much. This has been really, really great. I expected good things from you already, but uh, this was even you. better than I, than I could imagine. So thank you so much, uh, Heather, for, for joining today. Thanks, Ben. Awesome. Awesome. To everybody else, thank you for connecting today. Um, this has been We Early Human. I'm Ben Eubanks, your host, and we will catch you next time. 
Thank you for listening to We're Only Human. Please take a moment to share this episode with another HR leader who might see it as a valuable resource in their daily work. For more information about the podcast and to see all our show archives, please visit upstarthr.com.